Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, July 9th. We begin with a look at the newly released federal fiscal snapshot. We hear the details from Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken. Next, we catch up with Ward 9 Councillor Giancarlo Carra for an update on this week's City Council hearings on systemic racism, including the decision to add another day of meetings to address the concerns of Calgarians. Then we look at the controversial issue of wearing a mask in the battle against COVID-19. We debunk the myths surrounding masks with infectious disease specialist Dr. Craig Jenny. How do you know what info to trust and what to ignore when it comes to the coronavirus pandemic? We get some helpful tips on how to sift through the info from a University of Alberta librarian. And finally, the impact of COVID-19 has had far-reaching implications when it comes to businesses across the country. We speak to a prof of business management on how and why the impact has been particularly hard on female entrepreneurs. 6.42 now, and we're joined this morning by Global's chief political correspondent, David Aiken. We're talking about the massive deficit projected uh, at the announcement by the federal finance minister yesterday. Good morning, David. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem, guys. And there's no uh, no sugarcoating it. $343 billion is the anticipated deficit this year. And just to remind everybody what a deficit is, a deficit is what you get when your expenses exceed your revenue. So in a normal year, last year, let's say, the government spent about $350 billion. This year, it's going to spend that 350 and another $343 billion. So this is huge. The deficit's 10 times what it was last year. Um, and when we take this $343 billion deficit, then at the end of the year, we're going to add it to the national debt. And we went into the year with a national debt at around $700 billion. Do the math. And we're going to end up with a $1.2 trillion national debt. And here's the weird, here's the mind numbing thing to me. Even with a $1.2 trillion debt, the cost to service that debt will be less than last year. We're going to pay $4 billion less in interest with a $1.2 trillion debt than the $700 billion debt we had last year. Wow. And why is that? That's because interest rates have cratered so much, the government is basically borrowing for next to nothing. I mean, well below the cost of inflation. So it's a big number right now. Everybody says we can afford it. The issue is, how are we going to get this deficit back to manageable mm -hmm. levels? And the government doesn't have an answer to that just yet. Yeah, details were, were uh, you know, uh, vast when it came to these numbers. But the recovery plan, I think a lot of Canadians were left wondering, you know, where do we go from here and uh, what is that plan? Are we expecting to hear some kind of a, of a map to, to, to try to move uh, toward um, getting things back in line? Uh, I, definitely the opposition is, is asking for that sort of thing, some recovery, or at least give us a sense of where we're going to go to this deficit. Is it going to be taxation is going to have to be raised? Is it going to be services cut? No, nothing from the government on that front. And really the issue for the government is it says, you know, first and foremost, we've got to manage this public health crisis. We're worried about a potential second wave. Different parts of the country are at different stages. You know, Alberta seems to be well down the track to uh, recovery, but other parts of the country are still sort of very on the nervous restart. And until you can get some uh, idea of of how the public health crisis is going, it the government says it's difficult to make plans. And mm -hmm. that's why we saw this, quote, snapshot. All we got was numbers for this year. We don't know what the government's thinking about next year or the year after that. David, were there some warnings? You know, should there be a second wave? Were, were there any keys and, and look aheads to that? 
Yes, and in fact, this is some of the scarier reading um, in this particular snapshot. Even though it's a snapshot, it's still a 168-page document because the government kept saying, we're not sure about this forecast. It's very uncertain, uncertain, uncertain. So they would present a range of scenarios. One of those scenarios was... What happens if we have a second wave? And let me sketch out where we're, where what what that would be. Right now, the working principle is that the economy will shrink by six point eight percent this year. That's big, but the economy will shrink by six point eight percent. That's the operating principle now. If we have a second wave in the fall, and we've got to go back to some lockdowns, we could see the economy shrink, says the government, by. 14%. And to put that in perspective, in the worst year of the Great Depression, 1930, that was the worst year, mm-hmm. we saw the economy shrink by 15%. A second wave could see our economy shrink by 14%. So that gives you the sense of, you know, these are some grim scenarios. We could have a year that we've never had as bad since 1930 if a second wave hits. And that really reinforces why policymakers, premiers, prime ministers, and public health officials say, absolutely, we've got to manage the public health crisis, or we're just going to cause more economic damage. Incredible and staggering numbers. Thank you very much for your time this morning, David. Thanks, guys. Cheers. That is David Aiken, Global's chief political correspondent. The big number like that, you know that we're all in it and it's deep. Does that bother you? $343 billion deficit within that fiscal snapshot. And as David said, you add to that, uh, you know, the debt itself, $1 trillion, $1.2 trillion, It's quite shocking. It's, I mean, it, they're almost incomprehensible numbers. Mm-hmm. But as he says, with the cost of borrowing so yep. low, it's actually, you know, it's it's not may not potentially be as bad. I mean, it's, will, can we ever get out from under can that? Can we get out? What, what are your know. thoughts? Send, send us a text, 403-974-8255. I brought this up with Danielle yesterday. I'm guessing there's going to be an increase to the GST. 8-11 now, and a public hearing over the past two days has given Calgarians a chance to speak out against racism and police brutality. In fact, so many people wanted to share their experiences. A third day has been added. We're joined now by the chair of the committee, Ward 9 City Councillor Giancarlo Carra. Good morning, Giancarlo. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Has it been a powerful couple of days for you? What have you heard from Calgarians? We have heard, you know, uh, amazing stories, um, stories of whole lives of immigrants, uh, stories of incidents of just really unacceptable behavior in our society in this day and age. Um, we've heard anger. We've heard hope. It's It's been a real, I mean, for me, in my position of privilege, it's been a really emotional and difficult conversation. So, I mean, I can only imagine um, what people who live this every day are feeling. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the powerful stories that you've heard. Let's, let's talk about the numbers. Uh, can you give us an indication of how many Calgarians uh, came out to, to uh, have their voices heard? Well, um, by the end of today, we're expecting to be at about 200 people, and wow. I think we're we're over halfway through that at this point. And, um, you know, technically the, the procedural bylaw calls for five minutes and then questions, but, you know, when someone's deep into recounting a very emotionally traumatizing and physically traumatizing experience. Sometimes you just cannot hit the clock. Uh, And so testimonies have gone long and they've been powerful and questions from committee. 
you know, my, um, you know, to my co- my colleagues' credit, this is a special meeting of Community and Protective Services. There are only eight members of council who sit on it, but all, all of council has spent time, and almost all of council has spent all of their time uh, listening to this and being moved by by what we're hearing from our neighbors. And with the words that you've heard, the numbers of the people that want to have their voices heard and to speak to you. So obviously, you know, that there's a huge message coming through here that something needs to be done. So what is going to happen after day three? What will go forward, you know, from this? Well, um, we have on the floor of committee right now, basically the report, the actionable item from from administration. And uh, the first thing we're doing is we're establishing an anti-racist racism task force. Um, but we're also, uh, I think, preparing a re- what we heard report and then delineating a huge number of action items. And the, and the big question, of course, is that some things the city will do and needs to do and needs to lead on. Some things the city needs to collaborate with uh, the community and institutions and members of the community on, and there's some things that the city needs to get out of the way on. And it's really about, it's like our economic development strategy. The city can't do everything, but it has to understand where it sits in the broad sweep of, of everything. And there's a lot of things that we can and must do as the city of Calgary. Is part of the difficulty, uh, Councillor, that uh, when you talk about systemic racism is uh, to, to correct the problem is not a one-size-fits-all. It depends on the organization, the, the amount of people in the organization and, and the existing makeup? Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and it's systemic and, and it's about multiple organizations overlapping. And, and it, it is a huge deal. And it's also about bringing the majority of Calgary along with the understanding that, you know, this is a thing. And this is a thing that we're all complicit in, and it's going to take all of us to dismantle these these structures of, of you know, the, the term is structures of oppression. Mm-hmm. And that's what they are. And those of us who have sat through um, this this hearing so far and who are going to sit through today, you can't deny that. It's, it's, it, it, it is a real edifying and un- it, it is a significant journey, and I encourage all Calgarians to tune in and to listen to some of these testimonies. Giancarlo, just got a text in. Racism is something the left hangs on to like a teddy bear. Everybody wants to be a victim. Can you give us maybe even one story or perhaps a response to that in terms of what you've heard over the past couple of days? Yeah, I mean, I guess my first response is dial in open up your web browser and spend some time listening to your neighbors talk because it's very easy. I mean, we are, I believe in a time when we are being deliberately divided, uh, you know, for the purposes of winning politics. And this is not about winning politics. It's about living together and building a society together. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to share stories of, of profiling and police brutality and just carelessness and 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 disregard uh, for our neighbors who are who are receiving unbelievable treatment just because of the color of their skin, mm-hmm. uh, just because they are not part of a privileged white majority. This is a real thing, and if you do not believe it's a real thing, tune in and listen because. We are, Cal- we are Canadians, we are Calgarians, we pride ourselves on, on being a pluralistic, diverse society where everyone can come and make a great Canadian life together. And there are 
systems of oppression that are in place that are holding our neighbors back from from sharing in that Calgarian and Canadian dream together and and it's on all of us so you know it's it's very easy to get to 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 get your hackles up i mean i'll tell you like the spectrum of i i consider myself someone who understands that structural racism is a thing mm-hmm. and my journey has been bridging the yawning gap between the theory of it and the practice of of understanding this is what our neighbors live and i encourage everybody if you have questions, if you don't think this is a thing, listen in and listen to your neighbors. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I appeal to your humanity and I appeal to your sense of Calgarian equity and, and Canadianism. Let's, we, because this is not something that black, indigenous and people of color who now represent 36 percent of our population. This is not something they can solve on their own. It's going to take all of us. Well, we salute you and the work you're doing on it. Thank you so much, Councillor. Thank you. That is uh, Ward 9 City Councillor Giancarlo Carra. 708 Thursday morning, wearing a mask or a facial covering in the community is recommended for periods of time when it's not possible to consistently maintain a two-meter physical distance from others. That is the recommendation from the Government of Canada, as well as our own health officials here in Alberta. But there's a small and very vocal minority out there adamant that it's unhealthy to wear a mask. So we thought we'd get the official scientific breakdown on masks. And joining us once again, Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. Good morning, Dr. Janney. We've missed you. Good morning. It's been a while. It has. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, let's talk about masks because we hear, you know, the people who, there are some people for health reasons that that cannot wear a mask. Okay, Mm. fair enough. And then there are some who say it is just unhealthy and I watched it on YouTube so I know it's a fact. Help us with the stats here. Yeah, that's that's one of the problems. I mean, there there are a lot of different alternative facts on YouTube. Um, masks have been shown to be one of our more effective tools with this coronavirus. In the past, with other viruses, the masks have been less effective, and that's simply because of this difference with things that are truly airborne and things that are droplet and things that are surface. And and I know there's that, that's another whole debate whether the coronavirus is airborne or not. Mm-hmm. What we do know is that in areas where masks have been brought in, we have seen a reduction in the number of cases and we've seen a reduction in the spread and that has been quite dramatic. And in areas that have refused to follow mask guidelines, they've had a much more difficult time controlling the virus. Dr. Janney, in fact, we just got a text in right now and uh, the texter says, it's not healthy to breathe carbon dioxide uh, while wearing a mask. So um, I'm wondering, the amount that we might be breathing in wearing a mask is that unhealthy? Could that cause a concern? Yeah, that, 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 that's a, uh, essentially zero concern. So a number of studies have, have been done, and people have even done this now on uh, national news, where they will wear a mask for even five, six hours at a time and be hooked up to a machine that measures blood oxygen and blood carbon dioxide, and there's absolutely no measurable shift whatsoever in their blood gases. So these non-surgical masks have no impact whatsoever on carbon dioxide in the body or lack of oxygen in the body. So those ones, uh, you know, I think we feel that way. I think people who are not used to wearing masks feel as though they, they are suffocating and it is entirely a psychological reaction to having something over their face and 
biologically that they're not impacting at all the gas exchange or their actual breathing. Thank you for that. Okay, so you know there are others who just say this it is it's not going to stop me from getting sick. So why would I even bother? Yeah, that's a great point, and we do understand that, and that has been part of the argument about, you know, that they're less effective at protecting you and more effective at protecting others. But we really have to also look at this at the big picture, that if none of your neighbors are sick, if none of your community are sick, the odds of you catching it also drop down to near zero. So the the lower we can get the virus load in the community, the much safer you are as an individual. And there's the other side of it, that even if it's not protecting you, if you're not directly involved in infection, if we have 1,000 cases here in Calgary or 2,000 cases, we are going to have to close the things that we've just reopened. So if you enjoy going out for a bite to eat, if you enjoy being able to go and get your hair cut, we want to do our part to ensure that there are not thousands of infected people in the community. And the best thing we could do is physical distancing, hand washing, and wear a mask. Let's talk about housekeeping when it comes to the masks and the usage. If I, if I had one of the free masks from the province that I picked up at the fast food restaurant, is that purely a one use or can I use that a couple of times? I know you can't wash those. Yeah. And if I have a handmade mask, how often should I be washing them? So the, the disposable ones, yes, you can wear them a couple of times. Basically, as soon as they, they, they have gotten dirty or you've worn them a few times, they, they really should go. Uh, the the handmade fabric masks, uh, again, er, you know, could wash them every day, could wash them every couple days. What, you know, once they're dirty, once you've been wearing them a long time, they're, they're pretty simple. Those ones can just drop in the washing machine with another load of laundry, and, and they'll be good to go. I, I wear a, a fabric one when I go out, and, and whether the, the business is crowded or not, it's a very simple thing to do. I have them in the car, and, you know... They go a long way to community support and community um, recognition of the people who are taking the risk and saying, I'm going to do my little part uh, when I go out to get groceries mm-hmm. and I'm not the ones that are in the intensive care unit. Dr. Janney, somebody texted us yesterday and said you should treat your mask like your underwear and wash it. Don't wear it if it's ripped. Don't wear it if it's dirty. Wash it regularly. That's a good one. Um, I wanted to uh, mention this one to you, too, because other people say, you know, the mask, you know, I just need it to cover my mouth or I don't need to worry. It's useless because, you know, stuff can get in at the sides. You know, truth to any of that. Yeah, so we want them to cover your mouth and your nose. And and obviously, the better fitting, the tighter fitting, uh, the better they are. But this is where the recommendation of, of even a homemade mask, even if, you know, it's minimal, something like a bandana, th- things of that nature, you know, the blending great with stampede parties, um, but they work. Anything over your face that knocks droplets down, that, that reduces how far the particles you breathe out can travel, they're not going to completely seal off the world. They're, they're not going to stop all virus from leaving your body, but they're going to definitely reduce how far they can travel so that we are able to better protect people who are unfortunately within that two-meter uh, uh, physical separation zone. What do we think about uh, outside? Uh, Is it still a a case that you don't have to wear one if you've got some distance to yourself? You're not in a crowded area outside that you don't have to wear a mask? Yeah, exactly. If you're outside and you're able to maintain that that physical separation, by all means, take the mask off. Enjoy, you know, the the sun. Enjoy our short summers. Um, But... They really are critical when we get into the tighter spaces. So we can imagine shopping, we can imagine public transit, 
uh, things of that nature where physical separation is all but impossible. Even if you're trying, there's enough people around that are going to step into your your little physical uh, separation zone. So those are the places that we really need the mask. If you're out walking on a trail by yourself or, or with family members, uh, the mask really does no good, and there's no need to have them on in those conditions. Here's someone saying the U.S. states have mandated mask use as early as April and have seen no reduction. So to me, that's the evidence. Obviously, they don't feel they need to wear a mask. Yeah, the, the the problem with that, and they are right, that there's some frustrating numbers that come out, and that is because often these uh, mask uh, guidelines or even laws in the United States are simply not enforced. So we have seen the recommendation for masks in a number of areas, and we see no impact in numbers. But when we look at the video and we, we, we see the interviews of people in those cities, they're simply not abiding yeah. by the guidelines. And we're seeing a number uh, of U.S. officials saying, yeah, my, my mayor passed it, but I'm not going to enforce it as the the police force so there's a there's strong disconnect of what's on paper and what people are actually doing in the community and other jurisdictions where they have brought in the masks and and people wear them uh regularly we do see the impact Mm -hmm. in the numbers here's another one Uh, what about people wearing them when they're alone in cars now i guess we could look at it as one person in the driver's seat or uh maybe your passenger or people in the back i guess we if you could break down both of those in a car, there's no need to wear them. Uh, although, you know, this is probably similar to my own personal experience where uh, at least uh, every couple of weeks I'm looking for the sunglasses that are on the top of my head. Um, <laughs> so I'm sure people had just gotten out of groceries and, and loaded everything in the back and jumped in the car to get home to the kids. And it just doesn't occur to them that they're still wearing which is great because it means yeah. they're comfortable or with they, their mask. Or they might be going store to store, right? Absolutely, so And we're not yeah, supposed absolutely. to keep touching no. the mask. So, so there's lots of reasons for it. But if you're getting in the car or you're going to drive to Edmonton by yourself. There's no need to have a mask on. Um, again, cohorting in a car, if everyone's from your own family, your own social circle, your own bubble, there's no need for everyone to have a mask. If, however, we're looking at something that's more of a taxi or an Uber, uh, masks, absolutely. You're within that two meters. You're in a confined space with, with air that's going to be recirculated. Uh, there's no harm whatsoever and, and highly recommended to, to throw a mask on. Love it when you come join us and, and pop some of those myth bubbles <laughs> that are out there. Thank you so much for joining us. Anytime, guys. Take care. You too. That's Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Prof, Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the U of C. 749 on the morning news. The World Health Organization says there's some evidence COVID-19 is an airborne virus. Does this new information sway the non-believers? To get all the details on this new info, we're joined by microbiologist and the germ guy who hosts the super awesome science show, Jason Tetro. Good morning to you, Jason. Oh, good morning. Well, how exactly does this change things if, in fact, COVID-19 is an airborne virus? Well, actually, it doesn't change anything because if you actually look at the way that the letter was set up and what the recommendations were, um, it's going back to the 1800s with Florence Nightingale. Um, But the problem is that what they're trying to point out is when you have a bunch of people who are put into a room that has four walls and it doesn't have any ventilation, then the droplets that are formed will start to hover around. Now, the size of the droplets can range from big big ones that we see when people are sputtering while they're talking or singing to very, very small ones that may take a little bit of time to move around and and fall to the ground. And as you increase the time that somebody is in that room, 
then you increase the chances that somebody's going to come into contact or be exposed to enough viruses in order for them to be infected. That's all this is about. I think you mean speaking moistly. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so really, the, the message here is that these droplets may be staying in the air a little bit longer, and it just kind of reinforces then, the, again, we, we keep talking about it, but the whole mask thing. Yeah, and the other thing is it's not that it may just stay a bit longer if there's no ventilation, but it's going to increase. Um, have you ever been in a room where you don't really have ventilation and it just gets stuffier and stuffier yes. and stuffier? Yeah, yeah. And someone who has bad breath all of a sudden turns the room into bad breath? Yes. Well, that's OBO. the same thing that we're talking about. <laughs> you just need to open the window or turn on a fan. Now, if you can't do that for whatever reasons, and there are places where this occurs, then what you want to do is you want to have your own barrier protection so that you're reducing the chances that the molecules that are part of a virus can't get into your mask. There's probably nothing you can do about bad breath. <laughs> but the thing is, is if you do that barrier protection, then you're increasing the chances that those viruses are going to get stuck into something before it goes into your respiratory tract. Jason, we have about uh, 20 seconds, but I'm also reading bits and pieces of the past few days that it might not be as transmissible on surfaces. It might not live as long. Is that is that the case? Oh, yeah. That, uh, within like two to three hours, it's probably down to a point where it's not going to be very transmissible. That being said, if you're at a uh, an airport kiosk, how often is it that uh, you wait for, you know, two to three hours before you uh, check in? Mm, okay. Right. Okay, so, I mean, bottom line, your thought, are you a mask or yay or nay guy? Uh, I'm a mask guy whenever there are people around, but yeah. that's just because I'm antisocial. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that aspect. Thank you so much. Appreciate you joining us. Take care. Take care. That's microbiologist and the germ guy. He's also the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. His name's Jason Tetro. All right, our next guest has advice to help you sift through an endless stream of information and, and really to help sort out what's accurate and trustworthy, particularly when it comes to COVID-19. We're joined this morning by Kara Blizzard, a University of Alberta librarian who teaches information literacy skills to students. I think something we could all really get some help with. Thanks for joining us, Kara. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, so talk to us about this. There's so much information, so much misinformation out there. How do we figure out what's for real and what's not? Yeah, exactly. It's There is so much new information that's constantly being published about COVID-19 that it can just become sort of overwhelming and confusing. How do you know what what you should read, what you should watch and listen to, what information can you trust. So it can be kind of challenging to keep up with current events anytime, but especially right now. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be a source of stress for all of us. But there are a few habits that you can develop to help sort of alleviate that stress and improve the way that you're engaging with the information. Um, so one thing that I would just say is that a lot of us use spend a lot of time um, on social media, mm -hmm. and that can become a really major source of information. And the information that you see on social media isn't inherently going to be good or bad. Um, it really depends on what others are sharing that you see in your feed. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you say, but be, it is, sorry? Sorry? So you say be critical of that uh, those items you see on social media. Yeah, for sure. Like you want to um, examine it before you actually end up using that information because social media can be a really common way for misinformation to be spread. It's so easy for someone to put together a post with sort of a, a fancy looking graph or some sort of compelling image that doesn't actually give the full context. Um, and that 
can be shared over and over. And so many times we just see the headline and hit, oh, share, because it seems, you know, seems, oh, that, that, that makes sense to me. Share didn't read the article, didn't check that there's anything factual to it at all. And then it gets shared and shared and shared and shared. And, and therein lies part of the problem, right? Exactly. Yeah. So one big piece of advice that I have is um, before you share or even before you spend a lot of time looking at a piece of information you find online, take a minute with it. Um, see if you can figure out where that information came from or, you know, who created it. And that can just involve doing a search online. So if you like to use Google, just do a quick Google search for um, the author, if there is one, the organization, um, what are what are others saying about them? So, for example, um, recently somebody on my own Facebook feed shared a post that said people shouldn't be wearing non-medical masks. Mm-hmm. And uh, at first glance, the author kind of looked by their name. They seemed like reputable. It was called the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. But when I Googled that organization, there were a number of articles saying that they are a a far-right conservative association that regularly shares information that's scientifically discredited. Wow. So it's homework, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Mm -hmm. just taking that moment to do a quick search to see what you can find about that information. One of the things you also mentioned is to develop a set of sources you can trust. And I understand sources, uh, meaning plural, not just one source of information. Yeah, for sure. So there's no single fully neutral source out there. Of course, a lot of um, writers are going to aim for being neutral, but it's it's hard to get that. So if you want to make sure that you have balanced information, it is a good idea to have uh, more than one news source that you're looking at and also look at more than one type of source. So you could also be looking at um, public health organizations for advice and information. Great reminders, all of them. Thanks so much for joining us, Kara. You're welcome. Thank you. That's Kara Blizzard, University of Alberta librarian. She teaches information literacy, literacy skills to students. Coming up on 609, women are more likely to own newer and smaller businesses and in fact have been more heavily affected by the pandemic than men. Bringing a gender and diversity lens to the pandemic discussion is Wendy Sukier, professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. Hi, Wendy. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. So can you tell us how the pandemic has affected more women than men? How can that be? Well, there are a number of levels. First of all, women are more likely to be in the sectors that are directly affected uh, in services and retail and so on. Secondly, um, women are more likely to be self-employed than owners of small, medium enterprises that are incorporated, and that has implications as well for access to financing. And third, women are being crushed by the burden of unpaid labor, childcare, homeschooling, Mm -hmm. and so on, and that's disproportionately affecting their businesses as well. Have we ever seen a time in, in the past recent history where women have taken a hit like this? Uh, obviously, it sounds like, you know, um, this has been the major version, but has there been uh, another example of this? I really can't think of anything. Um, you know, we know that during the Second World War, a lot of women went to work because um, men were typically overseas. And then when the war ended and men came back, um, there was a lot of restructuring at that point in time. But this is so devastating. And the shift to homework in particular 
I think um, I don't know what your experience is, but I've I've seen um, people who are are basically unable to do anything other than care for their children, mm-hmm. and that's had a big big impact. And and what about you know racialized indigenous newcomers? You know anybody who's sort of a um, you know of a, a, a non-white, I should say. You know, does does it affected them disproportionately as well? Absolutely, because you see the same the same phenomena. So if you look, for example, and I don't know Alberta as well as I know in Ontario, Ontario, but in Ontario, about uh, half of Indigenous women are on reserve, which means they're in northern and remote remote locations, which means they don't have an access to internet or broadband. And we know that one of the key things that has helped with the transition from um, during COVID is people very quickly digitizing when they don't have access to the internet. Right. Not only can you not do that, but your your kids are falling behind because you don't typically have access to the uh, the alternatives to schooling. So I do think it's critically important that we that we keep these things um, in mind. And it's interesting because Alberta has a particularly strong ecosystem when it comes to women entrepreneurship. There's there's some very well-established organizations and they've been talking about this for quite some time. One of the things that you focus on uh, in your article on theconversation.com is the uh, focus on the STEM, the science, technology, engineering, and math um, I guess, careers or those fields being underrepresented to begin with and the importance of, of, of that being bolstered. That might help something in the future if we, uh, we hit, hit a roadblock like this? Absolutely. But at the same time, we have to be very careful because if you think, and this happens all the time, you say entrepreneur and people think Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Elon Musk, we've got such a strong association between men in technology and entrepreneurship that often the people who own you know the corner store or the restaurant or the franchise or make um, bath products are, are not thought about when we think about recovery so mm-hmm. that that stem issue is again a double-edged sword yes we have women underrepresented we need to bolster that at the same time we have to recognize that if all your your recovery programs uh, focus on stem focus on venture capital they're again not addressing some of the the things that women most need you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the women that I know. And, and yeah, you know, a lot of the women who are kind of at home, maybe looking after the kids, maybe involved in multi-level marketing or, you know, a smaller sort of stay-at-home business. And, and they that would be all, you know, by the wayside during this pandemic, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And even women who are more established, uh, there was a survey done in Quebec that said that 60% of women had lost 50% of their business. And that was probably three times what what men reported Mm. and part of it is you know and and i would be a perfect example of this um when you you achieve a certain level of financial success normally you can outsource things you can have people clean your house you can have people take care of your children if they need a tutor you can hire one and all that's gone by the wayside so even for um well-established women who have uh, you know, the ability to free themselves from unpaid work in a way that, that lower-income women don't, they've been, they've been pushed back decades because we don't have those alternatives. 
Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, something that you've been key in uh, developing and leading, which is the Women Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub? Uh, is that uh, uh, something that has uh, provided any resources during the pandemic in this in this tough time? Sure. And in fact, uh, Mount Royal is uh, in Calgary is, is our Alberta hub, and they work closely with the University of Calgary as well as organizations like the Association of Women Entrepreneurs and, and the 51 and, and a lot of the and the Chambers of Commerce and so on, a lot of the organizations that support entrepreneurs generally and women specifically are, are banding together to, to provide better connections. So the Women Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub, um, it's, it's sort of the business-to-business um, piece of the Women Entrepreneurship Strategy. So our job is to try to build stronger linkages between the organizations, whether they're chambers of commerce and banks and, and mainstream business support groups or, or organizations targeting women specifically to improve information sharing. So that's one thing that we, we do. We're trying to counter stereotypes of, of what an entrepreneur is so that people think, remember Kylie Jenner is a, is a billionaire and, and, you know, made her billions using Shopify to sell her product. Mm-hmm. And we want to also um, identify good practices to support women entrepreneurs. So one of the things that we have launched um, is uh, an Ask Give platform to link women and others across the country. So a woman entrepreneur can can go online and say, I need $5,000 to do X, or I need advice on how to sell potatoes in in Poland, or I need someone who can be a coach or a mentor. And instead of being restricted just to their local networks, they have access to uh, to people across the country. So that's something we launched in COVID. And we also put a lot of energy into trying to get information out about how the different programs worked and also collected information about who they were not working for. So some of the some of the changes the federal government at least introduced were in part in response to that feedback mm-hmm. that women were being left behind. You know, and, and a lot of that information you're talking about, yes, you know, relates to, to this time right now, but for in the future, should something like this happen again, women and businesses might be better prepared. So I love it. I'm just on your website right now or, or the uh, Women Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub website, and you've got a special link there for resources for women entrepreneurs in Canada. So that website is wekh.ca. Thanks for joining us, Wendy. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. That's Wendy Sukir, professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. 820 on your Thursday morning, the COVID-19 pandemic has had an impact on veterinarians. We heard the story this week of a a vet being assaulted by somebody who wasn't happy about treatment they were getting. And it's adding strain to an already stressed out profession. So we're joined now by senior instructor in veterinary medicine at the University of Calgary, Jean-Yen Tan. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. That story was that is the vet involved in that story says this is not a, you know, a one off situation that that this is happening with veterinarians. And and is that something you're hearing a lot about right now? Absolutely. Um, Mental health is an issue in veterinary medicine. It has been for quite some time. Uh, Female veterinarians are actually three and a half times more likely to die by suicide than the general population. Just from a combination of 
occupational stress and you saw an example of what sometimes uh, veterinarians need to deal with in terms of clients not understanding the finances involved in taking care of their animals and their health. Um, you know, there's high debt income ratio um, in veterinary medicine and, you know, personality type. I think veterinarians are not alone in the health profession in that they're perfectionists. They want the best resolution for your animal. They want the best outcome possible. You've, you've just said a, uh, more than a few things that make it sound like a very complex uh, career and a career choice. So I'm wondering, are there supports within the veterinarian world to, to support those people who, who make a living this way? Sure. I think those things are growing. It's becoming, you know, the we're growing awareness in terms of um, this being a mental health issue. So it's become a bit of a priority in the veterinary medical associations in terms of getting mentorship, in terms of getting more wellness um, into the curriculum at veterinary schools, as well as support once you've graduated. Um, but I think it's important for the public to understand, too, the different pressures that veterinarians are under, you know, the fact that because we don't have universal health care like we do in humans, it doesn't mean it costs any less. You know, you've got a full service hospital as well as the general practice and specialists often at these veterinary clinics. And it takes a lot of money to pay the staff, to pay the veterinarians, to pay for all the equipment that goes into advanced veterinary care. Not to mention the folks that go into veterinary services. I mean, these are we love our pets at home. Imagine how much you would have to love animals to become a vet and then to have to put animals down, say, or not be able to help them the way you'd like to. I can only imagine how difficult that would be on you as well. Exactly. That's part of the great occupational stress involved. You know, you, you go into it because you love animals and you want to help them as much as possible. And sometimes for reasons outside of your control, you know, sometimes including finances um, and other factors, you're not able to give them the optimal care that you'd love to be able to do. Well, thank you for shedding some light on this for us. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. That is Jean Yin Tan, Senior Instructor in Veterinary Medicine from the University of Calgary.